This is Amateur Faith Night, a podcast where real-life friends talk about real-life religion, where questions are encouraged, doubt is talked about, and following Jesus is our main priority. Let this be a starting place for you to research things and study them out for yourself. God is bigger than all of our questions, and it is okay to not have all of the answers. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, Gary is not with us this evening. He is taking a little hiatus because it's summer and people have things to do. Um, but Jocelyn is joining us, which is my daughter. She is about to go off to summer camp for the entire summer. So we're spending quality time together before she leaves and she's super excited about it. You made it sound like Gary died. No, it's summer. He's doing other stuff. But anyway, so Jocelyn is with us. Um, we are going to do probably, um, the second to last episode, I think, of our series on the history of Pentecostalism. Um, So far, we have covered Dowie and Parham. I'm trying to remember as Jeremy's looking at me. Um, William Seymour, he's the one that did Azusa. Sanford. And Sanford. John G. Lake. And John G. Lake. Which one was the one that had the big uh, Zion? That was Dowie. Dowie. Okay. And then the tower was Sanford. Sanford. Okay. So we have made it to, I would say, pretty recent history because now we're we're coming up on... We're in the 30s. Yes, 1930s. So um, Azusa has ended at this point and we are coming up on what I would think... Um, I think at this point we've been pretty broad about Pentecostals in general or charismatic movement in general. Um, I think this is like the history so far of like everybody, all of the organizations, but yeah, they all pull their roots from here. Right. But I think at this point, um, our last podcast, we talked about the history of oneness Mm -hmm. and how the oneness doctrine got started, um, which was a little bit different than what we were taught, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we talked about that. So this episode, we are going to be getting into Almost like the formation of the UPC. So where before, like I said, we were talking about all Pentecostalism. I think this time, you know, this episode and probably the next episode as we wrap things up, we're going to kind of focus just on the United Pentecostal Church um, and their specific roots. And I say that almost like, I don't know if you can use the word roots because my grandparents are older than this. Well, not my grandma. She died. But my grandpa is older than the United Pentecostal Church. So, um, yeah. Where are, we, where are we starting tonight? Well, I think tonight we're going to discuss a little bit about the two groups, two oneness groups um, that merged together to form the UPCI. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about their differences and a little bit about how they came together. Okay. This, I think, is going to be maybe a little bit more solemn. I know we're pretty goofy and sarcastic sometimes. I've had complaints about that, so I apologize if our um, style is not your style. Sometimes, and I say sometimes all the time in my case, I feel like it's easier to laugh about things than to be upset about them. Um, I don't ever want it to be mocking or making fun of. It's not, that's not the point point for me honestly is just because some of the stuff so outlandish I have to laugh and too because that I lived it so um, I think this is the part of the history though that when Jeremy and I were 
really trying to study and get out of the organization that kind of um, helped us like break that tie a little bit because it's hard to leave. And once we kind of um, researched, well, I say we, Jeremy did this part um, and kind of found out exactly where we came from, I think it was easier to go ahead and make that decision to go. So this is probably a little more solemn of a subject, I guess, just because it is so close to home. But anyway. Yeah, I think what makes it tough is the fact that, at least for me growing up, um, I was always taught and always told that God is God, God doesn't change, and that there had been basically an unbroken chain since Acts chapter 2 of theology and belief and that it was set in stone and it never changed and that the UPC had restored that and um, I would say really misled and even lied to about the fact that that's not always been the case. Their current doctrine, their current teachings is not what they've always taught and what they've always believed. Mm -hmm. And if they tell you that, there's plenty of documentation out there to prove them otherwise. Right. And I honestly don't think people purposely lie about it for the most part. I think it's more they're just uneducated and they're kind of repeating what they were taught. I don't I don't think um, as far as people like laymen of the organization, I don't think that they are actually aware. Mm-hmm. I know I wasn't aware. So um, I, I, I don't feel like it's maliciousness on most people's parts. I do believe, however, that a lot of the ranks, such as David K. Bernard, completely know what they're doing, and I, I don't have the same feelings for, the, for that, um, for those people. But I don't want to make it sound like um, we think that anybody is like, that we know or on our level is lying on purpose. Yeah, I, I would somewhat agree with that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, before we kind of dive in, um, we're about to play a clip. And this episode, we may play another one. But this clip will kind of... Well, let me give you a little background on the clip. So this is a minister by the name of uh, Lauren Yaden. He is still alive. Uh, He's a pastor of a non-UPC church at this time. Uh, For many years, he had been a professor at the UPC Stockton Bible College. And in 1992, uh, Stockton held a, what they call landmark conference, which they actually still do. They still do. Yeah. Yeah. They still do this every year. Fun fact, Jeremy will post this message on his Facebook page every year during this conference. (laughs) Yep. And generally I'll put something like old school Pentecostal preaching, um, in hopes that someone will open it up and listen to it. Um, but in this clip though, he is discussing what is going on with what is known as the Westberg resolution or the reaffirmation of faith that took place at general conference in 1992, um, which basically they required ministers to start signing a document at first once every year saying that they would agree to teach and preach and believe certain things and that they couldn't do anything other than what was kind of outlined in this agreement. Mm. Uh, Later they changed it to where it's every two years. Um, But we'll get into that probably in the next episode. But in this clip, Lauren Yaden from the mic at this conference in front of tons of people in bigwigs in the UPC is kind of letting the public know, hey, 
you guys are doing a big cover-up, and things, the way you say it is, has not always been the case. Um, so we're going to play this clip. It's a couple minutes long, so enjoy. In 1945, our fellowship was formed as a coalition of two ministerial bodies who did not totally agree in doctrine. Although they were both Jesus' name fellowships, one taught that a person should be baptized in order to remit their sins. We call it baptism, baptismal regeneration. The other group taught that baptism should be performed in the name of Jesus in celebration of the sins that were already forgiven at repentance. That was the position of these two groups. They did not totally agree on several things, the new birth, eschatology, and other issues. While they both believed in holiness, they applied those doctrines differently. One group historically was more tolerant in that area than the other. The elders knew that these differences existed, but they determined that they, were, they had more uniting them than dividing them. And it was at this point they decided to fellowship the difference. Would you say that with me? Fellowship the difference. Neither side would have to relinquish their convictions, but they would build on common ground. They specifically asked the brethren not to deliberately antagonize one another about these differences. It's in our articles of faith. We will not contend to the disunity of the body. They put it in there on purpose. The fundamental doctrine, our statement, faith was purposely broad to embrace all the differences that they fellowshiped. Acts 2.38 and John 3.5 was open for interpretation. As almost 50 years have transpired since that time, we find that the coalition still exists. There remains the same difference of theology among us. While the two fellowships merge for the purpose of evangelism, there has not been a merging of theology. But with the passage of years, there's grown an intolerance to fellowship the difference. All right. Let's so, keep in mind that was in 1992. Two, I believe. So, I mean, we're kind of old, but that's not really that long ago. No. That was 30 years ago. Thank you, Jocelyn. <laughs> I but, mean, I was born 10 years after that was preached. True. However, in the whole scheme of history... As an organization, they're very, very young. Yes, let's just keep that in mind. And it was formed in 45. That was taking place... Well, the reaffirmation of faith, the Westberg resolution took place in 92 when it was voted and ratified. I think it went into effect in 93. So technically, that was probably the landmark conference after general conference, which would have been in like early 93, because landmark is generally the week after bot because of the times, for those that don't know what bot is. (laughs) They really get busy that time of year. Yeah, they do. (laughs) I forgot about that. But... How does that how does that that clip make you feel, Jennifer? Well, right now, because I already know the history, a little a little angry. Um, but good for that guy, man. He's got some kahunas because he spoke that in front of a, a lot of important people and he lost his license for that. He lost his license, he lost his position at the college right. as a professor. And I'm sure he knew that that was going to take place. But... Oh, I'm sure he knew he was signing his death wish right then. But the question remains, how did we get there? Yep. And that's that's kind of what we're going to be discussing a little bit. 
So we're going to take it back. Earlier we said the 30s, but we're actually going to take it back just a few years before that. So in 1924, um, there became a an alliance called the Pentecostal excuse me, the Pentecostal Ministerial Alliance, and it was formed under the leadership of Howard Goss. Then just a few years later, they changed their name in 1931, the same group, to the Pentecostal Church Incorporated. So we'll probably refer to it a lot tonight as the PCI, Pentecostal Church Incorporated. A conference was called for all oneness groups to kind of convene in Columbus, Ohio, to promote unity between all these different groups. Because even though they were oneness, a lot of them had different beliefs as far as salvation. So do you know how many groups we're talking about like in this? In that time period? Right. That were oneness specifically. I mean, from what I've read, I'd say I recognize probably 20 different organizations. Some were very, very small. Others were bigger. But nowadays, there's tons of oneness groups. Okay. Well, I meant like at this point in time. Like why? Okay, keep going. I'll ask my question here in a minute. No, go ahead. Well, I don't think, I think I'm jumping ahead. Okay. Okay. All right. So they were asked to kind of convene to, you know, unity and kind of join ranks and see what they could do to promote the gospel together. Uh, A month or so later in November of that same year, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ was formed. And we're going to end up referring to them a lot as the PAJC. The PAJC was made up of ministers who were who broke away and were unhappy with Howard Goss and the PCI. Um, so the PAJC started in the PCI and they broke off. They broke off. Okay. Yes. So they broke off from the PCI because they weren't happy with Goss or the PCI. And the reasoning, the main reasoning behind that was because the PCI had debated at their general conference the validity of the new birth. Okay. As And when we say new birth, we're talking about the requirement of water and spirit birth. Okay. Well, because at the time before that, like where Azusa Street started and everything, the Holy Ghost or speaking in tongues was just considered an extra gift still, right? That wasn't considered salvific. No, it was okay. not considered salvific at all. Right. Okay. That is like so crazy to me that it wasn't salvific all the way back at azusa street because that means everything that we were taught was like such a lie (laughs) it was such a lie because they just praise and worship azusa street as this jocelyn hasn't been listening to the podcasts (laughs) she hasn't been keeping up (laughs) i kind of live the podcast every single day when we talk about it but it's still like mind boggling i mean these people are covering something up you know and it's just it's such a big cover-up, and it they is, don't care. It is a cover-up. They don't care. Right, well. They don't talk they about re- it. rewrite stuff. We, right, we'll get into that. We'll get into that, too. You're jumping ahead on yeah, that, Yeah, I'm too. jumping ahead. They, they don't talk about it, just like we don't talk about Bruno. Don't even play. We haven't explained <laughs> that song to you earlier, because you haven't seen the movie. All right. <laughs> Did you really? That's funny. <laughs> One time in chapel, someone submitted a question of like if Encanto was demonic and if we should watch it and they read that question and then the minister said well I don't think it was like demonic he said something like that and he goes but we we don't talk about Bruno (laughs) in front of a whole bunch of college kids and 
was, was a little funny. embarrassed for him to be completely honest well did everybody laugh i don't know it's when we were virtual oh oh well that's kind of sad that would have been all the people i was around laughed they thought it was <laughs> embarrassing for him that's fine i think it's funny so i'd like to now kind of discuss a little bit about the beliefs of the pci or pentecostal church incorporated um this is actual real documentation you can find uh the pci minister's manual online this is like real undisputable stuff we have copies of the manual um for example the pci's view on the godhead and when we say godhead their thoughts on like trinitarianism or or oneness oneness, right. right so their statement is godhead man is triune spirit soul and body god is triune a trinity three manifestations of one god not three eternal eternally distinct persons or gods so that's interesting yeah so to me yes that's that's definitely i would say a oneness belief um keep in mind even trinitarians though are monotheistic they believe in one god they believe in one god yes um however that is getting pretty close to be a Trinitarian viewpoint to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very subtle, very yeah. subtle, subtly different. It's like they almost have it. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's right there, but they don't have it. It's, it's right there though. They can like touch it. Well, maybe like they were trying to word it in a way that was not offensive to either side. No, it could be. Getting could PC. Be. Mm-hmm. So their beliefs on baptism. Baptism was in water by immersion uh, for converted believers who had turned from their sins and a love of the world. Um, they would baptize in Jesus' name not to remit someone's sins. Uh, they did not believe or agree in baptismal regeneration. Um, they would baptize in celebration of the person's sins already being remitted and that they were a converted believer already. So it was a celebratory act. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Um, I do have lots of thoughts on that, but I'm going to hold them for a little bit later. Okay. Baptism of the Holy spirit uh, is for all believers and is obtained by obedience, by asking for, by tarrying for, by faith, and is accompanied by speaking in tongues. So but they still believe that they yeah. they believed and taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit that they believed would be evident by speaking in tongues was a second blessing, an empowerment. Okay. So it wasn't a salvific. Oh, a- absolutely not. Gotcha. Okay. No. So almost like a non-denominational oneness, non-denominational church. They're getting real close to be assemblies of God to me. Right. Other than that they don't baptize in the titles. Right. Well, they broke off from Assembly of God, right? Originally? Well, yeah. Technically, all oneness groups did. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. At least the oneness groups of that time period. Right. Okay. So, so the Assemblies of God baptizes in the titles, like currently. Yes. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't know that. Yes. I haven't taken a History of Christianity course yet. <laughs> That's okay. next semester. All right. So then their ideas on holiness. Godly living should be characterized by a life of every 
godly living should be characterized in the life of every child of the Lord. He or she should live according to the pattern of example given in the Word of God. So, once again, this is their ministerial documentation, their manual. They really didn't have a set list of do's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. It was follow your conscience, follow the Word. Right. Live by the examples you see in the Word. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Eternal security. For a person to remain saved, they must abide in the grace of God. A person sinning against God and continuing in sin without repentance will eventually be cast into the lake of fire. Are you having issues reading your own handwriting right now? I am from this distance. (laughs) Where are your glasses, old man? (laughs) So what really got me on that is the eternal security thing is something that I struggled with a long time because I had pretty much given up that I could live a perfect life and a completely sinless life um, because we know that even our righteousness is filthy rags. So I kind of had given up for a long time just thinking, well, I'm doomed for hell. Um, they definitely had a different standpoint. I don't think they have a once saved, always saved type belief, but I think their idea based on at least what their manual said was, the grace of God covered you unless you purposely stayed in sin without repentance. Mm-hmm. So what year are we talking? Because you, you mentioned Howard Goss mm-hmm. and I'm completely fast forwarding here, but he was also the first superintendent of the United Pentecostal church. So what, cause at this point the Pentecostal or the PCI and the PAJC churches were the same. Mm-hmm. And then you said the PAJC broke off from the PCI. Right. But Howard Goss was also the superintendent of the PCI at that point too? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the manual, I'm not sure as to when the manual, or at least the copy we have, was printed, but I know it was at least 1931 or later. And the reason why is it says Pentecostal Church Incorporated. So before that, they had referred to themselves as the Pentecostal Ministerial Alliance. Oh, gotcha. Okay. They did a name change in 31. So the manual we have it is was at least published in 1931, if not later. Gotcha. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the last thing I kind of want to talk about about their beliefs is conversion. So when they believed a person was converted from a sinner or enemy of God to a saved friend of God, uh, conversion or forgiveness of sins comes by repentance towards God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That mm-hmm. is what they believed was the point of salvation. Right. Okay. So getting into, like going from going from those beliefs to what the UPC today believes um, in such a short amount of time seems a little crazy to me. <clears throat> but you were talking about the PAJC breaking off from them initially. And I'm assuming I know why, because I know before we started recording, you asked me to talk about the PAJC, and I'm Mm -hmm. assuming that's where you wanted me to go with that. Yes. Okay. So this is completely unscripted, clearly. (laughs) Um, Okay. I got faith in you. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's just shocking that um, that they had it together. I mean, coming from where... The history that they came from, because we were learning about all of the fraud and the... I mean, people were killed basically murdered 
um, in the building of this kind of an organization. So, I mean, as far as their doctrine, it sounds like they pretty much had like pretty strong roots Mm -hmm. considering all, I would think. So um, hats off to them. But then I guess that wasn't good enough for some people. Because they changed. The PAJC changed a few things as far as the beliefs go. So I think um, getting into that would be good. I think the main thing that I can think of that would be different would be X-238 and their interpretation of X-238. Well, that was the main reason for them breaking away. Okay. That's why. Okay. So... This is really hard to explain, I think, without actually going into when the United Pentecostal Church was actually formed in the 40s, Um, because that was a lot of it. So do you want me to go with that? Do you want me to skip forward that far? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I mean, we'll we'll circle the wagons back around. Yeah. I I think it's important to show the distinction between the two groups. Right. Okay. So... Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ. That's mm-hmm. okay. Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ. They believed in Acts 2.38 that the word for, when you say um, baptize for the remission of sins, um, basically is baptism or regeneration. They don't like to call it that, I've been told. Um, but Jocelyn, can you explain this or you look really confused? I know we've had this conversation a million times in our house. We have had this conversation a million times. I am so lost right now. (laughs) I am trying to remember everything we've talked about. Like, my dad is sitting there with a notebook. I think I'd be better if I, like, had my thoughts all together. This was a very last-minute thing for Gary to not be available. (laughs) You want to come talk with us? (laughs) I just, I know that four is just that big word Is it? Are you baptized for the remissions, like in order to receive the remission Mm -hmm. of sins? Are you baptized because 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 of? of. Exactly. Good job. I'm proud of you. Well, that's I can remember that much. All right. So that that is the big thing, and that is the one thing that kind of um, was a hang up for us when we were trying to leave the United Pentecostal Church. We were kind of hung up on Acts two thirty eight because you know you have the three step salvation, which is what the popular teaching of the United Pentecostal Church is um, today, and. I know that the church that we were from held to the PAJC beliefs about baptism and how baptism is essential for salvation because in order to receive, quote unquote, the remission of sins, you have to actually be dunked and immersed completely underwater in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, a couple of things with that, that I, are we going into the issues that we have or just what they believe? <laughs> If you want to bring up issues, that's fine. Okay. Um, so I think the differences between the PCI and the PAJC, the main thing, like I said, is that word for. And like Jeremy said, the PCI baptized because their sins were remitted. At Where, forgiveness. Well, right. So I'm going to get into that. But the PAJC baptized in order to obtain the remission of sins. So I'm going to give an example, Acts chapter two, verse 38, and I'm going to quote it because I'm a Bible quizzer and that's what I do. Um, but according, I'm going to kind of reword it though. According to the PAJC, Acts chapter two, thir- Acts chapter two, verse 38 would read, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized 
in or or in Jesus name, sorry, I just quoted it wrong in order to receive the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The PCI would say, Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized in Jesus name because you have received the remission of remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's a huge difference there. And what that one little word means. And ironically, I never knew before that the word remission actually translates to forgiveness. I think I was always taught it was something completely different than forgiveness. Um, Like the way that our pastor would explain it was that the water being baptized in the water in Jesus name would wash away your sins. So you can ask for forgiveness and God would forgive you, but it would still be in your, like on your soul or in your heart until you're actually dunked underneath the water. You look at, you're looking at me like I have three heads. Okay. <laughs> like look really confused. Um, so me- meaning that word remission was actually something different than the forgiveness of sins. So as I think that was probably the main hangup, cause that's a huge hangup because if you're baptized for salvation in order for God to forgive you of your sins. That's a huge difference than being baptized to celebrate the fact that God has forgiven you for your sins and has saved you. So I can see where those two groups would not, would not coincide. Mm -hmm. Those beliefs are are major different. Yeah. Also the PAJC had very strict ideas of holiness standards as Mm -hmm. well. Right. And we're going to, we'll, we'll break into that a little bit as well. Maybe some night, maybe we need to talk a little bit more about the Greek word ice, which translates to four and how it's used in other parts of the new Testament. For example, John the baptized or John the Baptist baptized for repentance. Mm-hmm. He didn't baptize in order for you to be able to repent. Right. He baptized ice or the word for because you because, had repented. Because you had repented. So, Correct. I mean, that, that'll kind of show you how the word is twisted under the PAJC's beliefs. Right. Right. Which, until you actually... And again, this was before Google was a thing. Like, you know, and, and I, I think sometimes that I forget that resources were not as readily available. And you were listening to whatever minister you had in your life, probably, at that time. And trusting that they had done their homework... Or God had actually shown them some revelation, you know. So, I mean, I get it. But if you actually break that verse down and think about it, what that word for actually means, it doesn't make any sense if you're saying that you have to be baptized in order to receive forgiveness of your sins. Because God says he, he your sins are as far away as the east is from the west. When you say you're sorry, God forgives you. Mm-hmm. That's the grace and the mercy of God. And so in order to have to earn that by being dunked in a tank of water just sounds so far-fetched. But that's what I was always taught. Well, not only that, if you want to get technical, the UPC, their idea, if baptism immersion in Jesus' name remits your sin, if it does, then pretty much 90, 95% of the people they're baptizing, even if that is what it works... It's not working. And the reason why is we see the example in the book of Acts where I believe Ananias told Paul to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
So it based on the grammar in that verse, right. it would have to want, be the one being baptized that would invoke the name Jesus. Arise and call upon the name of the Lord. Yes. yes. Not the minister. Rise and be baptized, calling so, upon the name of the Lord. Yes. So, I mean, if that's the case, then even they're still doing it wrong. Yes, Jocelyn. She has her arm raised like we're in school. <laughs> I just keep getting talked over. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Talk. Okay. Um, my question is, is how come it's only the oneness Pentecostals that get hung up on this verse? I have been in other services, non-denominational services, AOG services, Baptist services, and I've never heard anyone else reference Acts 2.38 or even really Acts 2. Except for UPC, like Pentecostal services. I could be wrong, but there is another prominent organization out there that is Trinitarian that does believe that baptism does remit mm-hmm. sins. It's the, and if I'm wrong on this, I apologize. Uh, these are, I'm sure, great people. I've never met them, so I, I don't really want to slander or anything like that. But the Duck Dynasty people, the organization they belong to, I believe believes that baptism remits sins and is a salvific issue. Yeah. It's just not very prominent because it's a newer belief. I mean, think about this. We're talking about the 1930s at this point. So that's less than a hundred years ago. It's almost a hundred years ago, but it's less than a hundred years ago. And the whole scheme of the history of Christianity, this is a relatively new idea. Well, in 1992, we're, not actually 1992, 1993 at that landmark conference, we're talking the organization would have been less than 50 years old at the time. Right. When that was going on. Mm-hmm. Less than 50 and years if, old. Right. So I think you mentioned, Jeremy, that at one point the PCI and the PAJC were combined. Mm-hmm. And then they split over this salvific issue. Mm-hmm. But then someone had the brainiac idea to, ooh, let's get back together. And that was in... 1945. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what Lauren Yaden was talking about in the message clip that we just heard. Right. We're not going to jump ahead to 45 quite yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Am it's I okay. skipping your notes? It's all right. Sorry. It's all right. No worries. Um, what I thought we would do at this point is I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the key people in the PCI that became key people in the UPC after the UPC was formed. Gotcha. Kind of like show a little bit about their history briefly, their ideas, their lifestyle, and how that actually came over. So we're going to dive into a little bit into Olive Olive Haney's uh, life. So Olive Haney referred to her two parents, Frank and May, as being the most godly people that she had ever knew. Uh, her father, Frank, had grew up in a Baptist church. And went to a Bible college in New York. Um, after some studies in New York, he then went to California. Uh, he started a pen- attending a Pentecostal church. Now, keep in mind, this is early 1900s, um, not long after Topeka. So, around 1914, they actually became missionaries and left for Japan. Now, Olive said that both of her parents had been baptized at that time. In Jesus' name. However, her dad had not spoken in tongues because he said that he didn't see the need in it. Gotcha. And Olive Haney, who was the wife of Clyde Haney, who was the mother of 
Kenneth. Yes, <laughs> Kenneth Haney. So we're talking about <laughs> Kenneth Haney's uh, mother and how she referred to her parents as being the most godly people she had ever met. And that her father, who considered himself a Pentecostal, just didn't see the need in speaking in tongues. Which, can I add, that's our friend Kim Haney's father-in-law. His father-in-law's mother. Yes. Just Pentecostal royalty marries Pentecostal royalty and it's just... Well, I'm sure she is Pentecostal royalty just because she married into it. I don't know who she was before she married. Cinderella story. I I don't know. Kim Haney. I don't know who she was or who she was prior to her becoming a Haney. I'm sure she's a lovely lady. Um, so it is interesting though, the difference between, um, Kim's message that we dissected mm -hmm. a while back and how she no longer even talks to people who were in her life that cut their hair or left the church organization that she's belonging to. But yet this is the history, right? She would have had to cut off family. Right. Who is, Which, who is supposed to be the patriarchs of the Stockton Bible College. The church organization that she's a part of. And yeah. the actual, yeah. And that's the thing. I'm not saying, like, I'm, I have no idea who my great-grandparents were as people. Like, I have zero clue. And I have no idea if I'm like them or not or if they would approve of what I say or not. I have no idea. But it, the, in the same breath, these, the, we're talking about not only were, is it their family, which I've heard that her husband also has talked about men's underpants mm -hmm. and like dictated like what they can and cannot wear, which again, that's like Mars Hill stuff right there. You, right. Yes, it is Mars Hill stuff. But I, um, my point is we're talking about the heritage, not only in their family, but in the church organization that they have ties to and very strong ties. Cause obviously they're, they're still prominent. Oh yes. So I, I just find that very, yeah, I don't even know the word. <laughs> like I, I don't want to say crazy cause I feel like I use that word a lot, but seriously. And this, this information cannot be denied. This is not being made up. This actually comes, the information I'm giving you is from a book that was written by Olive Haney as a um, biography about the life of her husband, Clyde Haney. Mm -hmm. uh, the name of the book, it, just so you guys are aware, is The Man of the Hills Served in the Valley. It's out of print, but you can find it. It is definitely worth having, especially if you want to dive into what the early UPCers believed um, in their lifestyle. And there are a lot of pictures, and we're going to bring up some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. here in just a moment. So for an, kind of give you an example in this book, there are some pictures of Olive Haney, Clyde, the family. Um, so on page 90 of that book, there is a picture of Olive Haney and her mother, the missionary that went to Japan, um, that had been baptized in Jesus name. And from my understanding, she did speak in tongues. Uh, but there is a picture they, her and her mother both have shortish bobbed hair. Uh, the picture that really sticks out to me is, um, there is also a picture of Olive in 1933, page 126, where she has definitely really short, what would have been considered bobbed hair. And she's also wearing a necklace. It's not like she had a bus cut, but it was not even really shoulder length. I don't think. Mm-hmm. 
Would yeah. you say it was shoulder length? Yeah, I don't remember. And I and it's black and white too, so in all fairness, she could have had it like rolled up weird or something. Um, but she's definitely wearing a necklace for sure. And it's been said that it was bobbed. Yes. Yeah. Whatever. So, so in 1941, <laughs> uh, Clyde Haney uh, started to open a church in Fresno, California with the PCI. After speaking with the general superintendent at the time, which was Howard Goss, they decided against it. Um, later on, around 1941, uh, they did start a church in Pasadena, California, and it was started also under the PCI. So keep in mind, Kenneth Haney's parents, at this parents point. Mm-hmm. believed the PCI ideas on beliefs. Which means speaking in tongue is, tongues is not salvific. They had very lax holiness standards. Baptismal Baptism was... Not salvific. Not salvific. But they believed it should be done. Right. And in Jesus' name. Right. Okay. Um, but anyway, in 1941, they opened a church in Pasadena, California. It was said that Clyde and Olive's son, Kenneth Haney, who became later a general superintendent in UPC spoke in tongues at the age of seven. However, they didn't baptize him until he was nine. So nowadays, if a child was to speak in tongues in a service, they would probably be baptized at service, if not the following service. Right. Because it's considered a salvific issue. If that kid was to, heaven forbid, be in a car accident on the way home after he just spoke in tongues being a small child... He would go to hell because his sins had not been washed away. Which again is shocking to me. And and someone made this this point to me when I was studying this out. A lot of times you'll see in church services, you know, like, oh, a sinner came in, repented, and spoke in tongues. Now they have to get baptized. But there's a parable that talks about putting new wine in old wineskins. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't understand how that would be if you, your, your sins have not been washed away. If your sins have not been forgiven, how would you be receiving the spirit? Right. Exactly. They'll tell you that the spirit won't stay or, or abide in an unclean person. Right. Um, Clyde was a definitely wants to say something. This is just a thought, you know, about the wine skins and putting new wine and the old wine skins. Like do UPC licensed ministers know all this information. Like, what is the qual? Like, how are you qualified to become a licensed UPC minister? Yeah, I think that that's probably going to be a next episode kind of situation we get into, really. But there's not a whole lot of qualifications. Yeah, there. From my understanding, there's not. But we we'll try to dive into that if we can. Yeah. That's not something I was really prepared for. <laughs> okay. I'll be honest. So sorry. So sorry. I'm not so Gary. Sorry. <laughs> So Clyde was an outdoorsman. He loved to camp and he loved to hunt and he loved to fish. Um, It was said that when they would go camping, they always went to church on Sunday and they would visit any local congregation and regardless of denomination and beliefs because they wanted to be a church and they wanted to be with the Lord's people. Which funnily enough, I wasn't even allowed to visit the UPC church down the street when I was growing up. Now we're going to dive into a little bit about Howard Goss. Howard Goss was the general superintendent of the PCI. 
um, when the UPC was formed in 1945, uh, he became the first general superintendent of the UPC as well. Howard Goss worshipped with Trinitarians. He also openly, from the mic after the UPC was formed, even up until the 50s, would state that he believed Trinitarians would make it to heaven. And he would trade his pulpit with non-UPC ministers, non-PAJC ministers, non-PCI ministers. And he would allow them to preach in his church because he felt that they were part of the army of the Lord as well. And that was the first general superintendent of the UPC. Um, We also have people like Andrew Ershon. Uh, Andrew Ershon, he also would fellowship with Baptist organizations. Uh, I believe there was a few different times uh, he would allow a minister from Long Beach, California, a Baptist minister, to preach in his pulpit and come and minister to his people. So that th- those are things that would never happen today in a UPC church. No. And if they did happen, it was for a very, very special situation. Maybe there was someone, I don't know, in the local community passed away. And just for whatever reason, that minister was asked to speak at that. Right. Well, I do, I do remember sometimes in the church that we came out of, one of the churches that we came out of, like they would have like a community kind of service or whatever where the mayor came one time, mm-hmm. like stuff like that. But no. No, like the Baptist minister down the street would never have on a regular Sunday morning been invited to speak. Yeah. It's just fascinating to me because, again, Jeremy, Jeremy's doing the baseball signals mm-hmm. again. Yes, you need to wrap this up. I already told you that. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, then what we're going to do then is we'll we've got some more that I would like to actually cover in this episode. Um, But we're going to break this off and we're just going to get it all done in the next episode. Uh, The next episode, we'll be talking a little bit more about Goss. We're going to talk about a a gentleman by the name of C.H. Yaden. We're going to get into two different Bible colleges in the UPC and their way that they taught, the way that they instructed their students. And we'll also get into how the UPC's beliefs have actually changed since 1945, not prior since. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like we can go to the merger. All right. I, I feel like you can wrap it up in the next 10 minutes. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll give it a try. So to talk a little bit about C.H. Yaden, C.H. Yaden was definitely high pedigree in the UPC. He was the Northwestern District Superintendent from 1949 to 1957 He was also the National Home Missions Director from 58 to 67. In 1968, he became the president of Conqueror's Bible College, which later changed its name to Cascade Bible College, um, from 1971 to 75. And he also served as the superintendent of the Oregon District for a while as well. So we're talking about a man that held many different roles over a long period of time in the organization up through the formation of the organization of 45 to the 70s. And even after that, he was also assigned as an honorary member of the board of the UPC. Preacher than a Pentecostal preacher. It was said that even his sermons in the 70s were typical of a Baptist-style sermon, which I find very interesting that there were ministers that were mocking him and saying that he would have made a better Baptist minister in the 70s than he would have a Pentecostal minister. 
All right. So um, once again, I'm just trying to point out that these men had very different ideas on beliefs than what we would see in the UPC today. And so now we're going to get into a little bit about these two colleges. Actually, you know what? We're, we're going to go into the formation. So with the formation of the organization in 1945, you had the PCI come together and the PAJC. They met in St. Louis, Missouri. Which is ironic because they're the same groups that said we didn't want to be together in the 30s. You are correct. And yeah. now all of a sudden, for what? Why did they decide to do this? Well, the PCI was a smaller organization than the PAJC when they came together. However, the PCI had a lot more money and funds. Um, they were more prosperous. And they had already had a pretty established mission work outside the U.S. Uh, or outside the U.S. Uh, the PAJC was larger, but they didn't have a whole lot of funds or monetary means, and they wanted to beef up their mission work. So the two groups came together in hopes since they were both oneness and they both believed in baptism and immersion in Jesus name. They did not believe one group didn't believe it was required for salvation. The other did. And they both believed in speaking in tongues, but not for the same reasons, but they did decide to come together to further the gospel, believing that through unity, they would have a bigger group, larger amount of funds just to push the gospel of Christ. Yep. Yeah, money and power. But that's exactly the point that uh, Lauren Yaden was making in the message that she played at the very beginning, um, talking about why, or actually the history, just saying that, yes, there were these two groups, and yes, they decided to join together, which personally I feel like was a really bad decision. But I think that's as far as we are going to get, and I think you guys are going to have to wait another two weeks until we continue with this so next episode will be the last episode of the series of this um of the history of pentecostalism this i think is the this episode and the next episode i think are going to be um the same kind of vibe very solemn because it's it's um eye-opening but if you're still in the organization or if you're planning on leaving or if you have left the organization this um I can't even describe the feelings that I had when I first found out this stuff. It was betrayal and anger and, um, you know, it all comes down to once you figure out what you've believed your entire life or however long you've been in it is a complete lie. Um, just depends on how you, how you handle that as a person. So I know for me it was super upsetting. So I guess this, just listening to this is just bringing back all those emotions of just, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. So anyway, next episode, we're going to be getting into the formation of the UPC, how they did combine, how they decided to fellowship the differences as, um, Warren Yaden said. So we will get into that next time, guys. Thanks for listening.